Well, um, I heard about a guy uh, who went into a restaurant and he asked, went in and he said to the maitre d', I'd like a table for 26, please. And the maitre d' kind of looked at him with this puzzled look on his face and he said, 26, why do you need a table for 26? There's only 13 people with you. And he said, well, yeah, but we all want to sit on the same side. <laughs> now I think that's what Leonardo da Vinci must have been thinking when he painted his portrait, The Last Supper. There they are, all sitting on the same side of the table. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with this picture, actually. You look at it, first of all, I mean, they all look like they're, I mean, they're all white people. They're from the Middle East, right? It's just a bunch of white guys. They're sitting at a table. Well, they would have been reclining, right? Um, so there's a lot of things wrong with this. And the reason I share this with you is because I want you to, to realize that over time, culture starts to change our understanding of important events, right? In our, in our society, I mean, there's a hint of individualism in that painting too, isn't it? They're all facing the front. They're all sitting in rows facing the front like we're doing today instead of s sitting in circles and interacting with each other, right? And so culture and time start to change the way that we see things, the way that we understand Events. William Barclay, who's a very well-known commentator, said, if someone from the first century walked into one of our communion services, they would see very little in common with what they did in their day. This would be foreign. They'd walk in here and go, what, what is this? Because it happened in a home, around a table, like sitting, not, not a table like that. They'd be sitting on the floor with cushions, facing each other, interacting. It was over a meal. It's very interactive and very community-based. So it's important that we go back to the original context so that we understand the meaning of what we're about to do today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so we need to understand what that means. Now, before I get started here, I want to, I want to acknowledge there's three types of people here today. There's those of you who, what I'm going to say, you, you totally get it, you understand it, you've heard it all before, and that's fantastic. You're walking with the Lord in obedience, and that's fantastic. This is a reminder and an encouragement to you. And so just celebrate. Hey, I'm walking with the Lord. Things are going well in my life. I'm so thankful for what Jesus did as we celebrate this. Just let the praise and gratitude overflow your hearts. Another group of people, there's those who participate in the Lord's Supper even though they don't really know Jesus personally. Or they do know Jesus and they're walking in a state of disobedience, unrepentantness. For you, you need to listen today. Perk your ears up, because there'll be an opportunity for you to kind of sweep things clean and participate in this with a clear conscience and a clean heart. There's a third group. You're here just visiting, checking things out. You don't know Jesus. You don't understand the Christian faith. Fantastic. This is an opportunity for you just to kind of sit, watch what we do, learn. When the elements go by, you just pass them by, right? You don't need to participate. It's not a ritual. This is something that we do that has a lot of very deep meaning. So, let's look at the text that we just um, looked at in Matthew 26, 17 to 19. If you want to get your Bibles out, if you don't, um, it'll be up on the screen too, so you can just watch there. <clears throat> I'm going to reread these verses with some emphasis on certain words. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the what? The Passover. 
He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. The word Passover, you know, when a word appears one time in three verses, you kind of go, okay, it's just part of the the structure of the sentences. When it appears two times, you kind of sit up and notice. When it appears three times, that's a punctuation mark. Take note. Three times the word Passover appears in in these three verses. It's important. So listen to what I'm about to say. What we're going to do here, the Lord's Supper communion, can only be fully understood in light of the Jewish Passover out of which it was instituted. If you don't understand, because Jesus, it was a Passover meal. And what Jesus was doing was reorienting the whole meal around himself and placing himself at the center. And if you don't understand what the Passover was about, you can't really fully appreciate what we're going to do here today. (coughs) So, what was it about? Quick history lesson for you. Uh, Joseph. Joseph was, sla- was sold into slavery by his brothers to the Egyptians. They took Joseph down into Egypt. And there God rose him to a place of prominence under Pharaoh. And then, uh, well, he became the second in command of all of Egypt by God's grace and, and providence. And then God made a big, huge famine come. And Joseph's family back home were, were about, you know, they are starving. And so they go down to Egypt to buy some grain because Joseph through God's instructions, was able to save up enough grain and the rest of the world, the known world at that time, was coming to them to get grain. And so they end up, the whole family, down in Egypt, and they're there for quite some time. They're there for 400 years, many generations. And over that time, they started to grow and become so numerous that Pharaoh saw them as a threat to national security. So these guys are getting too many. So he enslaves the entire nation. That's actually a picture from the 16th century of Egyptian or uh, Israelite slavery in Egypt. Now, none of us really know what it's like to be a physical slave. Well, maybe there, maybe, maybe there is somebody here. I mean, there are forms of slavery in our culture. <clears throat> There's sex trafficking. That's a form of slavery, isn't it? There's the stuff that we did to the indigenous people of our nation when we stole their children away from them and put them into schools against their will. That was a form of slavery. <clears throat> so there are people who understand it, but most of us don't. <clears throat> right? But in Exodus chapter 1, you can turn there if you want, I'm just going to go over a couple of verses, we're provided with a description of what slavery was like for the Israelites. So chapter 1, verse 11, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. The word oppress means to to bring down, to beat down. Two verses later, verse 13, chapter 1, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The word ruthless means general hardship or to display violence. They were giving them beatings, making life really tough for them. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. There's that word again. Now, if that wasn't enough, I mean, Pharaoh says, you know what, this is, you know, we're we're treating these people ruthlessly, it's hard, we're, you know, some of them are dying just from, from labor. 
but I got a better idea. Let's start to kill all the little baby boys so that they can't grow. So genocide takes place. So imagine you're working like this under oppression and bitterness and harshness, and now you have to deal with the death of your little baby boy. Tough times. Oppression, ruthlessness, bitterness, harshness, grief. It was a time of hostility without protection, a time of being used with no hope. Now listen, you may never have been a physical slave. I've never been a physical slave. But at some point, every person here has been a slave to sin. Many of us still are. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6 about spiritual slavery. (coughs) 6, starting in verse 16, he says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Bob Dylan had a song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. You might serve the devil or you might serve the Lord, but everybody is serving somebody by who they obey. So the question is, who are you obeying? You know, our culture uses the word addiction. The Bible uses the word slavery. If you cannot stop a sinful pattern in your life, you're a slave. Now there's physical slavery, Right, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis in our country. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are addicted to pharmaceutical drugs that are destroying their lives. One of my best friends, I lost him to this. And I went in and watched him on his hospital bed. You know, he had to start, he started to inject it. That's how addicted he was. When I would go to his home, there'd be blood spots on the ceiling. And he got a blood infection and it went to all his organs and he died people are slaves to sex listen statistics say Barna did a study of evangelical Christians that's us 50% of the men in this room watch porn once a month once a month people are slaves to eating it's causing all kinds of health problems heart disease diabetes Then there's alcohol, there's tobacco, there's marijuana, the list goes on. The physical addictions are endless. Then there's mental slavery. Here at home, the statistics say that more than 6.7 million Canadians struggle with mental illness, depression, anxiety, When I read this, I wept at my computer. (laughs) 11 people in Canada die every day of suicide. 11 a day. Listen, there's people who live double lives and present a persona that's not an accurate reflection of who they are. So the turning point for the Israelites, I'm trying to make this applicable to you as I go, because you may go, oh yeah, slavery, whatever. There's lots of slavery going on in our culture, folks. 
just a different kind. So the turning point for the Israelites comes in Exodus 2. This is what we read. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. I looked up the words for these ones. Groaned actually means moaned. And cried out means shrieked. There's only a couple of places that I've heard people moaning and shrieking. It's in hospital rooms, right? Or there's some extreme pain. My stepdad, Reg, is here. He, he got his finger injured and had to get a, a needle in his... Remember, Reg, when you got that big needle injected into your hand to, to freeze it? And I heard him shrieking from, like, way down the hall, right? It wasn't pleasant. My friend that I told you about that ended up in the hospital, I heard him moaning as his legs were this big because his kidneys shut down. And the last thing he said to me, I leaned into him and I said, Jerry said, Jesus loves you. And the last words he said to me was, I love him too. I don't know what you do with that, but I'm hoping that I get to see Jerry again. So, they groaned and they shrieked. And then it says their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. Went up to God. Their groans turned to prayers. Have you ever shrieked a prayer? <laughs> Groaned a prayer, moaned a prayer out to God? And it moved the God of the universe to come and deliver, deliver them. So let me ask you, there's people in here who are enslaved, there's no doubt. I have no doubt about it. Do you want to be delivered? Are you at the point where you're moaning and you're shrieking from your bondage to whatever sin has got a hold of you, has moved you to pray and ask God to deliver you? Because if you have, he's, he's ready. He wants to deliver you. That's what he came for. So then we're, we're told God had a plan. He had a plan to, to deliver these, these Hebrews, the Israelites, out of Egypt. He had this little boy, you know, they were killing all the baby boys. Well, he had this one picked out, Moses. And he protected him, and he saved him, and he ended up getting found by Pharaoh's daughter and brought into the palace. And then God calls him out to save his people. He leaves the palace to go and deliver his people, to be used by God to deliver his people. You know, Moses is just really a little, a little pointer to Jesus, right? I mean, they wanted to kill... Moses as a baby, who else did they want to kill as a baby? They wanted to kill Jesus, didn't they, as a baby? Moses was part of the royal family. Jesus was part of the heavenly royal family. Moses left the royal family to go deliver his people. Jesus left his royal family, came down here to deliver us. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. Everything points to him. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way. At this point, there's nothing Moses can do. He can't twist his arm. He can't force him to, to free his people. So this really becomes now a conflict between heaven and earth, between God and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And really, it just comes down to Pharaoh's disobedience, right? Sin is really just a manifestation of your heart, right? The sins are, in my, in my mind, I mean, some of them, are they, as they impact other people's lives, just really a manifestation of your rebellion and your unwillingness to, to yield and to, and to repent. And let me tell you, I, this is, I mean, as I thought about this, I thought, God loves obedience, and he hates disobedience. 
He loves us, but he hates disobedience. And I thought, well, why? Why does God love obedience and hate disobedience? Obedience honors him. Disobedience dishonors him. And I felt this, you know, not too long ago. My dog, Bella, or Belle, she, uh, you know, we're out, I let her off the leash. She's running around, all of a sudden, squirrel. Well, she's gone, right? And I'm running after her, and my, I'm thinking my two daughters are going to kill me if Belle gets, if something happens to her. So I'm running down this path, yelling to Belle, Belle, stop, stop, come back. And these people are kind of walking up the path as I'm running. I'm like, I felt like such a fool. My dog won't obey me, right? And I was kind of angry at Belle. I wanted to give her a little smack. Like, listen to me. I'm the, I'm the owner. You're the dog. Now, if that's the way I feel about my dog, how do you think our disobedience impacts God? I'm the Lord of the universe, and they won't obey me? They won't do what I say? That was the question surrounding Job, wasn't it? Satan came to God and said, you know, Job just follows you because you give him lots of good stuff. Take away his good stuff, and he'll curse you. It was really a test. Did Job love God and was willing to obey God because he loved them, or was he doing it because what was in it for him? So, God brings ten plagues or judgments against the Egyptians. <coughs> the first four, these are really all, each one of these represents a god of Egypt. The first four, you know, he turns water to blood, he sends a bunch of frogs, he sends lice and then flies. You know, these are really kind of the source of their drinking water. Flies and lice carry disease. I mean, these are affecting them in some significant ways, but, it, you know, you can kind of get around it a little bit. And the first four, the Israelites and the Egyptians suffered under these first four. But then in the fifth one, before the fifth one happened, God segregates the Israelites into their own little part of the country. And then he sends the next five. And so when the cattle starts to die, Pharaoh says, go look over at the Israelites area and see what's going on there. And so they come back and they go, no, no, the cows aren't dying over there. They're only dying here. And then boils break out. Pharaoh sends a guy over. No, no, no boils for the Israelites, just boils for us. And then there's hail, and then there's locusts, there's darkness. No, it's not dark over where the Israelites are, it's only dark here. And you know, these first nine plagues are like warning shots across the bow of the Egyptian ship. God is so patient and merciful. After all this disobedience, he's sending them warning shots across the bow of the ship. It reminds me of this passage in 2 Peter 3.9. It says that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody here to perish. Didn't want the Egyptians to perish. He wants them to come to repentance. So he sends these warning shots. And God goes back to Pharaoh one more time. Tell them there's one more plague to come. This one will make all the other ones seem superfluous. This is the granddaddy of them all, Pharaoh. Let the people go. Pharaoh says no. And so God prepares the tenth and final plague. But he provides a way out of this judgment called the Passover. So the Passover. On the back of your little papers there, there's uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 to 9. If you don't have those papers, you can, you can look it up in your scriptures. 
Exodus 12, verse 1 to 9. I'm just going to kind of skim through this. There's, there's five things I want to share with you that, that uh, God, I think, are worth highlighting for uh, what we're talking about today. So each man is to take a lamb for his family. And there's five things. The lamb was for the whole community. Listen, there's an individual aspect of faith, right? We have to uh, apply it to ourselves. But there's also a communal aspect. And I think we in the West have lost a bit of the community aspect to faith, right? It's more just about me. I'm doing communion by myself. Well, it was a family meal. It was a gathering. They would do it together. And so it was about a community and an individual together at the same time. It was to be a year-old male without defect. The animal had to be perfect. The lamb was going to be a substitute for the firstborn. In every house in Egypt, somebody, the firstborn was going to die. Egyptian or Israelite, didn't matter. And in the Israelite home, someone did die, but it was the lamb instead of the firstborn, if they did what God said, if they obeyed him. The third is the lamb had to be sacrificed and the blood applied. So you'd have this little lamb, you know, actually they would bring it into their house, so if this is their house here, you know, they'd go in, they'd bring the lamb in with them, they'd keep it in their home. I think that's significant. They'd bring it into their home for two weeks where it would live with them. And then on the night, the eve of the Passover, they would cut its throat, they would drain the blood into a basin, they'd take the lamb back in to get it prepared to eat, right? And then what they would do is what God told them to do is they had to apply the blood on the doorposts of their door, of their house. Right? This was a protective covering for them. It's the blood that has the power to make us acceptable before God. It's not you. It's not what you do. The blood makes them acceptable for, before God. And applying the blood to the doorposts was an act of obedience and faith. Now, this is not faith that is kind of a leap into the dark, okay? It's faith based on evidence. They'd seen the first nine plagues. They've seen them all happen. And they're going, yeah, that happened, that happened, that happened. And then the last five didn't happen to us, right? But this time God told us, this is coming. You do this, and I will pass over you. I will see the blood that, some, that the lamb has died in the place of your firstborn, and the, the blood will be a protective covering, and I will pass over you. Then that night, they were to eat the lamb. They were to roast it on an open fire. They were to consume it, the whole thing. Anything that wasn't consumed had to be burnt up. And they would get the lamb into them. They would consume it. Now, they would eat this also with bitter herbs. The herbs were a reminder of the bitterness of the life that they just endured as slaves in Egypt. And then bread made without yeast. Now, the reason they couldn't have yeast is because if you put yeast into bread, it takes a long time. You've got to wait for it to rise. They're getting out of here in the morning, right? Make bread without yeast so that you're ready to roll. Come morning, you're out of here, right? They have to be able to make haste. In the New Testament, yeast becomes a symbol of sin because when you put yeast into something, it spreads through the whole lump of dough. 
right? And so that, that was the symbolism that Paul draws out of that in the New Testament. And the last thing is judgment is coming, but God will pass over those who have put their faith and trust in him by what he's instructed them to do. Folks, judgment is coming for us, right? And there's no other way out of this except to obey and to put your faith in Christ. So the Passover was a one-time event, never to be repeated, only remembered and memorialized. And from that point forward, uh, up until the time of Jesus, there were usually three elements on the Passover table. There was the lamb, which symbolized redemption. There was the bread, which was a new beginning in getting rid of sin. And then there were their bitter herbs, a reminder of their lot under slavery. I found it quite interesting when Jesus says, you know, someone leans to him. I can't remember which apostle it was. Maybe if we look at Da Vinci's picture, we'll be able to know. No. Anyway. He leans, who is it that's going to betray you? And he says, the one who puts his, his bread in the dish with me. Well, they were, they were dipping into the bitter herbs. And how ironic that Jesus, the one who never sinned, is tasting the bitterness of slavery and oppression by the one who's going to betray him. Just a powerful image of, of how humble and gracious God is. I had the privilege of, as a little kid, one of my best friends was Joshua Schwartz. And uh, he was a, a Jewish boy, obviously, you can tell from the name. Um, we went to school together, and I got invited to their house for a Passover meal. And I went through this whole uh, ceremony uh, with them. And it was, it was uh, at the time, I had no idea what was going on, but looking back now, I can kind of really appreciate it. So when Jesus celebrates this meal, he redefines it. So let's go to the next, uh, the scripture passage. Matthew 26, 26 to 19. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. You know, there were four cups that they shared that, in that meal, and the fourth one is the one that's looking forward and after the third cup, Jesus said, I will not drink again until I return. That's kind of where that is, is coming from. So the Passover points to Jesus in the following three ways. The bread, what we're about to do with the bread, takes the place of the lamb and must be eaten by everybody. But you only eat the bread if you actually believe who Jesus said he is and what he's done and you put your faith in him. Also think of the fact, the bread without yeast, right, it doesn't, we're never gonna be sinless. But if you're living in unrepentant, rebellious sin, perhaps, I don't know your hearts, there's been times I've sat in this, in this auditorium and I've let them go by, because I wasn't living right, and I knew it, you know, I held a grudge towards someone, or I said something, I did something, and I just let him go by me, because I wasn't right before the Lord, and I had, to, I had to prepare my heart and make sure that it was right. So if that's you, get right right now. We're going to have an opportunity to do that, right? Come before the Lord and be honest and, and wipe the slate clean. And if you're not willing to do that, then you probably shouldn't participate. You should just let it go by. The wine takes the place of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus shed his blood 
for you. There's power in the blood. The blood of the unblemished, sinless treasure of heaven was shed for you. But you have to apply it. If this is the door of your life, you have to apply it to your door. You have to put it on the doorposts or else you're still under God's judgment. And if you haven't done that, then let these go by. You don't have to. This is not a ritual. This is deeply symbolic of being in relationship with Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. The third thing is, is the cross is the salvation event. The ten plagues and Moses delivering them out of Egypt, that was the salvation event. The cross took the place of that. Jesus paid it all on the cross. It's all done. So we just need to take the blood of Jesus symbolically, apply it to the doors of our lives, and we're good. So why do we do this? Three quick things. First, we want to remember where we came from. I wish we had bitter herbs. You know, those herbs were so bitter that you would eat them and, and you, you would start weeping because of the fumes from the herbs. And you need to look back. Sometimes I think we forget where we came from. You know, someone said to me the other day, oh, you go to church and you just pretend that you're, you got it all together and you're good. I said, you got it all wrong. I said, the church is a hospital. If anything, me going to church is a... Is a a testimony of the fact that I don't have it all together, that I'm sick. Like, would you say, you know, you go to the hospital because you're pretending that you're well? No, I come here because I'm sick, and I need Jesus. So we remember where we came from. We remember the person and the event that saved us. This is about Jesus. It's centered on the cross and the person of Jesus, what he did for us. He gave his body, he shed his blood, so that God, when the judgment comes, you will be passed over and you can enter into relationship with them right now. And the last reason I think we do this is to renew our commitment to God. We renew it. So we don't come here, you know, if you've sinned in the last week, and you go, oh, I can't, I can't, put, no. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm going to give you a, mi- a moment as we pass out the first element to bow your heads and to get right with God, to be honest with him. You know, in John chapter 3, the woman at the well, Jesus says to her, God is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. The word truth there is aletheia. And it's different than our 21st century concept of truth. It literally means unconcealedness. It means disclosure. It means revealing. It means the state of not being hidden. God wants you to come clean. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did is they hid. <clears throat> and what did God do? He called to them. He said, where are you? He knew where they are. He wanted them to come clean, to come out. So if there's stuff in your life that you've done this week, two weeks ago, the last month, you've been doing it for a year, let's sweep the, the, the yeast out. Get it out of your house and make a fresh commitment that you're going to start walking the way of obedience. And if you've been walking that way, then just celebrate the goodness of God. And if you're new here, just let him go by. Just watch and learn. However, you know, I want to say this before, before we, we go here. I, I, got a, I know there were Egyptians that watched all this in Egypt when this went down. And they left. The Bible says they left with the Israelites. And I'm not sticking around here. I'm following this God. He's the real deal, right? 
I don't know, it doesn't say in the scriptures, but I gotta think. They've seen these first nine. And then the Egyptians start hearing, the firstborn, they're gonna die unless you do this. I mean, I'd, I'd hope if I was an Egyptian, I would have painted my doors, right? So if you're hearing this for the first time and God's done something in your heart and you've just put your faith in Jesus this morning, right now, you want to cut, you want to apply the blood of Jesus to the door of your life, then just say that to God in a prayer and, and participate with us. This is a new beginning, a door to a new beginning, a new life. I'm going to pray now for the first element. We'll distribute them. And then while they're going around, just please be quiet. Take a moment by yourself and uh, get right with God. And then I'll give you some further instructions. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your kindness to us, that you gave everything that was precious and valuable for us so that we could be redeemed, we could be forgiven, we could enter into relationship with you. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave your body as a substitute for us so that we would not have to endure the judgment and the punishment of God and that we could be free and clean and forgiven and enter into a relationship with you which results in joy and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control, all these good things. So we pray as we celebrate that those who have to get right with you would get right, those who are right with you would just rejoice, and those who don't know you can let it pass by unless they've something you've worked in them right now, uh, they can participate and be part of what we're about to do. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. There's three people I, I talked to earlier. You know, if you came into this place, you're doing well, you're walking with the Lord, you know the Lord, and today was just a, an encouragement to you and a time to just be grateful and thankful, then bless you and may God's peace continue to rest on you and may you continue in that obedience. If you're part of the second group, you know, you've been not walking the way that you know you should, uh, but you were able to kind of get right or maybe you haven't yet. Um, and I pray that the Lord would continue to pursue you and that he would show himself to you. You don't want him shooting those boughs across your, your, your deck because one day it's going to be a, a, the, final, the final shot. So if you don't know Jesus or you're not walking right, get right with him. And for those of you who are new, this is just all new to you, um, we, we're thankful that you were able to participate with us I know maybe some of this stuff seems weird or you don't get it, but we'd love to talk with you about it and, and explain it to you more. You know, Pastor John used to dismiss people quietly, and I think that's a, an opportunity. Uh, I think this is a good time to do the same. There's ice cream sandwiches waiting out there, so you probably want to get out there. But listen, if you're one of those two other people, the people that are, you know, you, you've, you've, you've been struggling, or you just you don't believe and you want to believe or, or whatever, I'm going to ask a few of the ministry team members, elders, if you feel like that's something that you want to do. Stay up here. We'd love to be here to, to receive you, to pray for you, to hear you. Whatever, whatever you need from us, we're here to serve. So let me dismiss you in, in silence. And if you want to come up, there'll be four or five of us up here. If there could be a couple of uh, ladies stay behind too, that would be fantastic. So God bless you. May you go in the peace of God and the love of Jesus. Amen.